0: Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off. Bluenile.com code LISTEN.
1: Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 23. Condes, Portugal e Infanções. As you may have noticed, today's episode is shorter than usual, because I'll be breaking from the narrative format that I've used for the majority of the previous episodes. Also, for this episode, I'm drawing heavily on a book called Portugal no Reino de Leão, Etapas de uma Relação, or Portugal in the Kingdom of Leon. Stages of a Relationship by Dr. Maria João Branco, who is an associate professor of medieval history at the Universidad Nova of Lisbon. And now, let's get started. We are starting our journey by going back to the year 866 and taking a look at a period defined by Dr. Maria João Branco as the period of the county nobility. As we discussed in previous episodes, the conquests led by Alfonso III significantly enlarged the Asturian kingdom, nearly doubling its territorial size. This swift expansion presented the challenge of effectively managing and administering these newly acquired lands. The solution that was implemented was to bestow substantial portions of the recently conquered territories to the most influential noble families who held close ties to the king. These families were also granted extensive jurisdictional authority over these regions. In exchange for these grants, at least in principle, these nobles were expected to pledge their loyalty and obedience to the king. A pivotal aspect of establishing control over these regions involved a colonization effort that brought populations from the northern areas into these recently conquered territories. These migrations typically revolved around the newly established governing authorities and their local centers of administration. However, it's worth noting that these colonization endeavors weren't always met with open arms by the local inhabitants. Indeed, there is evidence suggesting that there was plenty of unrest, both big and small, where the local populations resented outsiders coming in and taking control. Therefore, it appears that the relocation of populations aimed to counterbalance the native communities with strong local loyalties by introducing new colonial populations whose allegiance was to the Lord who had just granted them land. So, in this vein, Alfonso III charged the noble Vimera Perez with taking control of the county of Portugal and directing the colonizing efforts in that area in the year 868. Initially, the geographic area of Portugal was referring to the city of Porto and the ecclesiastical boundaries of the ancient diocese of Porto. But during the Pereja administration, it expanded beyond the river Ave to the north and beyond the Dodu River to the south. During this time period, the territory is referred to in some sources as Terra Portugalense or Portugalia. The origin of the name Portugal comes from its Roman name of Portus Cale, which simply means the port of Cale. I've seen it stated that even though we have the spelling of P-O-R-T-U-C-A-L-E, it was pronounced in the vulgar Latin as Portugal from a very early stage. And as it turned out, this small region would soon lend its name to the future Iberian state. In 874, Alfonso III gave the city of Chaves to Count Odowaru, And he also gave the lower Ming region to Alfonso Betoche, charging him with the colonization efforts for that area. Similarly, in 878, after its conquest, Coimbra was given to Hermenegildo lugutax and was established as its own independent county. These three families formed the most powerful county-level nobility of the region for the next two centuries. And given the level of independence that they were granted over fairly large territories, It shouldn't come as any surprise that they were very active in court royal intrigues and power plays. I mean, why wouldn't they be? They had the resources and clout to have a say on who should rule and how they should rule, hence the frequent rebellions and civil wars that I've touched upon in many episodes. And this is probably the most prominent feature of the county nobility, their constant interventionism in court politics. The very fact of their independent structure naturally created a culture of autonomy in these regions, who came to see their right to rule along with the right to extract wealth from these territories as a given. Porto and Coimbra emerged as the vital focal points within this region, serving as prominent urban centers that drew immigrants in from the north. These cities not only acted as pivotal economic and cultural hubs, but also functioned as military strongholds tasked with safeguarding the population against incursions from al As mentioned in an earlier episode, one of the preferred strategies employed by the most influential nobility involved the establishment and endowment of churches and monasteries. This approach served as a means to extend their influence into distant regions, however It's essential to recognize that ultimate power stemmed from conquest and military strength. Those who opposed such actions, regardless of their religious or familial connections, often faced deadly ramifications. Consequently, the northern borders more or less maintained their stability, until the arrival of Al-Mansur, who disrupted the status quo and temporarily pushed the borders farther afield so the colonization and reorganization of portugal occurred within this framework however despite our familiarity with the nobles in charge during this period we still lack comprehensive information particularly regarding these early phases more detailed accounts tend to emerge later once the consolidation of power has firmly taken hold in the region for instance We are aware of Vimere Perez's involvement in defining the city limits of Braga, suggesting that such responsibilities fell to these magnates, but we don't know the step-by-step process of how such a task was carried out. Another example of this family in action was his son, Lucidio Vimarenge, who fulfilled many of the expected duties of county nobility, including engaging in raids, Conquests, church endowments, monastery foundations, demarcation of city boundaries, and even being a signatory on the official court records of Alfonso III and Orlando II. It seems that the Perej dynasty was determined to extend these actions further south, expanding their territorial holdings, amplifying their influence, and occasionally provoking the king due to their ambitious undertakings that stirred up tensions with the emirates. The top noble families of Portugal and Coimbra all engaged in strategic marriages with each other, along with marriages to the royal dynasties of Leon, which created new branches of dynastic power that cemented themselves across these regions. These dynasties, even though they had certain centers of regional power, were not limited by geography. These magnates all possessed lands that were spread out to Portugal. Coimbra, Galicia, León, and Asturias. When the king granted them certain territories, the boundaries of these grants were very nebulous and ill-defined, which of course posed its own set of problems. Now, turning our attention to the ties that bound the royal dynasties and the county nobility, this relationship was expressed through three primary avenues, service within the royal court, matrimonial unions with royal family members, and active involvement in royal intrigues. During the nascent period of the initial counts of Portugal and Coimbra, their engagement in royal matters was undeniably substantial. This is evident, for instance, in the situation that unfolded when King Sancho I was poisoned, triggering another round of musical chairs within the county nobility. And there is perhaps no better illustration of this phenomenon than Hermenegil de Guterres, the Conqueror of Coimbra, who adeptly cultivated a remarkable level of power and influence for himself and his family. His success in this endeavor can be attributed to several key factors. Notably, he formed a matrimonial alliance with Hermenegis de a cousin of Alfonso III and the granddaughter of Hamidu I, in what was a very strategic union. In 878, it appears that he assumed responsibility for overseeing the Coimbra region's occupation. Moreover, during the tumultuous 880s, Hermeneguil de emerged as a crucial supporter of Alfonso III, aiding the king in quelling numerous rebellions. Furthermore, he orchestrated the marriage of his daughter, Elvida Mench, to Ordoin II, Additionally, following Vímara-Pérez's death, Hermeneguilde Guterres was appointed as the governor of Tuí and Porto. The honors and privileges accrued by Count Guterres extended beyond his own person. For instance, his son, Arias Mendes, was granted the governorship of Coimbra, establishing a semi-dynastic tradition of succession. Delving into the exhaustive details of the marriages and offices acquired by this particular family is well beyond our scope. It suffices to note that across the subsequent four generations, Count Guterres' descendants managed to form matrimonial bonds with the asturian Leonese monarchs on four separate occasions. The Guterres family and its branches were not the only participants in this intricate game. All noble families, regardless of their size and stature, were constantly seeking advantageous unions with more prestigious counterparts. Moreover, historical records make it evident that the most influential families in Porto and Coimbra played pivotal roles in shaping the destiny of the Asturian-Leonese dynasty. It's worth noting that while strategic marriages were frequently employed to bolster these quasi-hereditary dynasties, The era's substantial uncertainties, where unforeseen deaths occurred for various reasons, demanded a great deal of flexibility and pragmatism when determining successors for high offices. In many instances, male lines of succession were terminated or extinguished. In response, we witnessed the emergence of women as regents, the legitimization of illegitimate sons, or the selection of cousins and second cousins as legitimate heirs. They simply could not afford to be so rigid about these things if they wanted to ensure the continuity of family power. These dynamics fostered a sense of solidarity among the upper echelons of society, whose objectives were often aligned. Consequently, they collaborated and supported each other's maneuvers against the royal courts or other noble coalitions, as suited their needs. Nonetheless, this dynamic could not go on forever. As the 11th century unfolded, most of the prominent noble houses found themselves in a state of decline. Their persistent interference and involvement in the dynastic upheavals of the Leonese kingdom appeared to have a destabilizing impact on both their influence and the authority of their monarchs. Precisely as this fragility took root, Al-Mansur embarked on his relentless campaigns into the region, dramatically altering the local power balance. Local magnates were confronted with the critical choice of either fleeing northward or pledging their allegiance to Al-Mansur. This added pressure from the caliphate also exacerbated conflicts among local lords. Some viewed this tumultuous period as an opportunity to expand their territorial holdings and sway. Now, we're going to examine the following in more detail in later episodes, but so much of what happened next hinged upon the fact that in the decades following the death of al-Mansud, the political and social reality would take a dramatic turn for the northern magnates, not to mention al-Andalus. In fact, what emerged was a situation where the lesser nobles who had supported and elevated the new reigning monarch now held the advantage of royal favor. Necessity dictated that the once-dominant magnate families aligned themselves and their futures with nobles of lower rank, but with close ties to the monarch. However, no matter what they did, these families would never be able to reclaim their former status and influence once they lost it. But who exactly were these lesser nobles? Now, I don't want to get too ahead of myself here, but I think it would be good to give you a brief introduction to the social class that came to the forefront of northern Iberian politics in the 11th century, and that is the class known as the infanzones, or, as the sources of the time referred to them in the original Latin, Fili Beninatorum, which roughly translates as the Well-Born Sons. According to the excellent and probably the most well-respected Portuguese medievalist of the 20th and 21st century, José Matozo, the origins of this lower noble class can be traced back to three main categories. Firstly, there were those who accompanied the counts to serve them. Secondly, there were individuals who independently migrated to the newly conquered lands, who lacked any vassalage ties to the counts. And finally, there were those who were already in these regions when colonization efforts began, either assimilating into the new order or facing elimination. Although these lesser nobles are not as frequently documented in contemporary sources as the counts, they played a pivotal role in the kingdom's sociopolitical landscape. The existence of these lesser lords presented a double-edged sword for the counts. On one hand, The counts granted them lands to manage and defend. However, unlike the nobility at the county level, these nobles did not possess extensive property holdings scattered throughout the realm. Consequently, they established deeper roots in these territories that they were assigned or that they had conquered independently. Their responsibilities for taxation and defense naturally led to the growth and development of their wealth and military influence over time. At the apex of this lesser noble class were the Infansoins, the well-born sons who set themselves apart from the county-level nobility through a significant and noteworthy distinction. Their increasing power was not granted to them by the king. Instead, they gradually acquired their rights and privileges while fulfilling administrative duties for the counts, and more importantly, through military conquests we will wrap up our examination of the political advancements in Northern Iberia during the 9th to the 11th century right here. So, when we resume our main narrative in the next episode, you will already be familiar with the underlying sociopolitical forces at play during the significant events that we're about to delve into. Until next time, thanks for listening.